We've, uh, we've been in the book of First Samuel since the beginning of February this year. Um, so we've been there for three and a half months, and we're just now wrapping up First Samuel today. Um, so today will be the end of this teaching series, and we've been looking at the book of First Samuel, but more intentionally, we've been looking at the life of David and what it means to be a son, to be a child of God. And David is the, the perfect example of what it means to be, to be a son and to walk in his sonship with his father. And so we've been looking at, you know, what it, looks, what it means to be an orphan, what it means to be a son through, through David's life and through Saul's life as well, through the book of 1 Samuel. Um, and we're going to continue in that theme today with David and with Saul. Um, so go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 31. We're actually going to be covering chapter 31 as well as the first chapter in 2 Samuel. So 1 Samuel chapter 31, I'm going to be reading the whole, the whole chapter. It says, Now the Philistines attacked Israel, and the men of Israel fled before them. Many were slaughtered on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. The Philistines closed in on Saul and his sons, and they killed three of his sons, Jonathan, Abinadad, and Machashua. The fighting grew very fierce around Saul, and the Philistine archers caught up with him and wounded him severely. Saul groaned to his armor-bearer, Take your sword and kill me before these pagan Philistines come to run me through and taunt, taunt and torture me. But his armor-bearer was afraid and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer realized that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword and died beside the king. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and his troops all died together that same day. When the Israelites on the other side of the Jezreel Valley and beyond the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their towns and fled. So the Philistines moved in and occupied their towns. The next day when the Philistines went out to strip the dead, they found the bodies of Saul and his three sons on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off Saul's head and stripped off his armor. Then they proclaimed the good news of Saul's death in their pagan temple and to the people throughout the land of Philistia. They placed his armor in the temple of the Asteris, and they fastened his body to the wall of the city of Beth Shan. But when the people of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their mighty warriors traveled through the night to Beth Shan and took the bodies of Saul and his sons down from the wall. They brought them to Jabesh, where they burned the bodies. Then they took their bones and buried them beneath the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. So the time had finally come for the kingdom to be taken from Saul. And we knew this was coming. We knew this was coming since like chapter 13, right? And there's 31 chapters here. We've known this for a while, that the Lord spoke that he was taking Saul's kingdom from him. He was taking the nation of Israel, and he was going to be putting it in the hands of another leader, that being David. But the time has come, and it has come in chapter 31. And at this point, death, death was the only option for Saul. Death was the only option because he wouldn't remove himself from the throne. He wouldn't step down and give his throne to David because his pride was too big. So the only way that he could be removed would be to be killed. He was being removed from the throne. And God uses Israel's arch enemy, the Philistines, to do that. So God used this enemy of his people to remove Saul from his throne. Um... And, it, and, and so he dies, but he doesn't even die in this honorable way, fighting to the end. 
Um, Barry touched on this last week as well, that Saul, um, he's wounded. The Philistine army is closing in on him, and he doesn't fight it out until the end. He asks his armor bearer to kill him, and his armor bearer wisely says no, because he's the Lord's anointed, and he's not going to kill the Lord's anointed. So Saul falls on his own sword. He commits suicide and dies in this sad, sad way, which has been the story of his reign um, as the king of Israel. Dies in a very sad way. Um, in the aftermath of his death, as the passage describes, different parts of his body are traipsed around the Philistine territory to show off that they have killed the king of their enemy, right? They have shamed their enemy. Um, and so, if we can go, here we go. So the battle happened here in this, I, know, I realize you can't read the map, that's okay. In this circle is Mount Gilboa. This is where the battle took place. And so Philistia is down here. But it says that the, the Jezreel Valley is just in this area right here. It kind of ends right at Mount Gilboa. But it says that the Israel, Israelite lands on the other side of the Jordan, they just abandoned their towns. Like this was a huge blow to the people. And the Philistines moved in and occupied their towns. This wasn't just the loss of their king. This was a loss of, of identity on many levels. Um, this was a loss of their land. This is a loss of who they are, the land that God had given them, the promised land. And so um, they abandoned their towns. They, all hope is lost. And their king is being traipsed around to the enemy territory to show off that they had killed the king of their enemy. Um, in the midst of this, though, in the midst of this, there's these folks. Well, Saul's body was hung right here in this town called Beth Shan. And right over here on the other side of the Jordan River is this town called Jabesh Gilead. And the people there wanted to honor their king. They wanted to honor their king, and so they go and they send their mighty warriors across the Jordan at night, and they steal his body back to give it a proper burial. This would have been dangerous. They were going into enemy territory. This was not Israelite-occupied territory anymore. They go in, they take Saul's body back to honor him. And we think, how would they want to honor this man? He was a pretty bad king when it came down to it. But Saul did some good things, and particularly with the people of Jabesh Gilead, he had saved that town. Um, back in chapter 11, um, the people of Jabesh Gilead were coming against by the Ammonites, and the Ammonite king said, I won't destroy you all. I just want each of your right eyes, right? So he's going to gouge out every person in the town. He's going to take their right eye. And they said, hold on a second. Let us think about this deal. And uh, so they contact Saul. They contact Saul. And they said, hey, we're being come against. And Saul comes in with his army and he crushes the Ammonites and he defends these people. So there's still these, these pieces of Saul that we see, this honor, this dignity, this being a king. And so these people say, this, this was our king. He saved us. He saved us from the torture of having our eyes gouged out. We're going to rescue him and give him the burial. We're going to honor him. So there's this honor that's coming towards this really bad king who died in this really bad way and who did some really bad things. But he was the Lord's anointed, and they, they honored him. Not only that, the, the armor bearer honored him by not killing him. No, I'm not going to kill you. You are the Lord's anointed. So there's this honor that's kind of flowing towards Saul, even though it's this horrible passage of death and the end of this important part of Israel's history with Saul as their king, a sad end. Um, while he showed glimpses of noble character, 
throughout his reign, um, defending some towns, doing some right things. He had a passion, a zeal. Sometimes it got a little bit too hyped up, and he did made some really rough choices in the midst of that passion. But overall, as we look at Saul as a man and as a king, from beginning of, from the beginning of his reign, when he was caught hiding between some luggage, you remember that because he was afraid to be anointed king, to the end when he fell on his own sword. Besides being an orphan, which is a word that we've used to describe Saul, he was a, he was a coward. And maybe we would say, geez, I would have done the same things. I mean, these are scary situations. But he was the Lord's anointed. The Lord was with him. But he chose not to walk with the Lord. He chose not to walk. He chose to walk as an orphan. But he was a coward. Yet the people chose to honor their king. Um, this is somewhat perplexing, knowing what we know about Saul. Um, now, let's go to 2 Samuel. We're going to see this kind of honor taken to another level. 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from his victory over the Amalekites. That's interesting, because Saul was supposed to completely destroy the Amalekites. So here's David fighting the Amalekites because Saul didn't do his job, and that's one of the reasons why Saul was getting removed from the throne, because he didn't destroy the Amalekites. After the death of Saul, David returned from his victory over the Amalekites and spent two days in Ziklag. Now, Ziklag is down here at the bottom of the map, about three days' travel from Mount Gilboa. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's army camp. He had torn his clothes and put dirt on his head to show that he was in mourning. He fell to the ground before David in deep respect. Where have you come from, David asked. I escaped from the Israelite camp, the man replied. What happened, David demanded. Tell me how the battle went. The man replied, our entire army fled from the battle. Many of the men are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. How do you know Saul and Jonathan are dead, David demanded of the young man. The man answered, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul, leaning on his spear with the enemy chariots and charioteers closing in on him. When he turned and saw me, he cried out for me to come to him. How can I help him? How can I help? I asked him. He responded, who are you? I am an Amalekite, I told him. Then he begged me, come over here and put me out of my misery, for I am in terrible pain and want to die. So I killed him, the Amalekite told David, for I knew he couldn't live. Then I took his crown and his armband, and I have brought them here to you, my lord. David and his men tore their clothes in sorrow when they heard the news. They mourned and wept and fasted all day for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the Lord's army and the nation of Israel, because they had died by the sword that day. Then David said to the young man who had brought the news, Where are you from? And he replied, I'm a foreigner, an Amalekite, who lives in your land. Why were you not afraid to kill the Lord's anointed? David asked. Then David said to one of his men, Kill him. So the man thrust his sword into the Amalekite and killed him. You have condemned yourself, David said, for you yourself confessed that you killed the Lord's anointed. Then David composed a funeral song for Saul and Jonathan, and he commanded that it be taught to the people of Judah. It is known as the Song of the Bow, and it is recorded in the book of Jasher. Your pride and joy, O Israel, lies dead on the hills. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen. Don't announce the news in Gath, that's in Philistia, don't proclaim it to the, in the streets of Ashkelon or to the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice and the pagans will laugh and triumph. O oh, mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you nor fruitful fields producing offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty heroes were, was defiled. The shield of Saul will no longer be anointed with oil. The bow of Jonathan was powerful and the sword of Saul did its mighty work. They shed the blood of their enemies and pierced the bodies of mighty heroes. 
How beloved and gracious were Saul and Jonathan. They were together in life and in death. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. O woman of Israel, weep for Saul, for he dressed you in luxurious scarlet clothing, in garments decorated with gold. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies dead on the hills. How I weep for you, my brother Jonathan. Oh, how much I loved you. And your love for me was deep, deeper than the love of a woman. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen. Stripped of their weapons, they lie dead. So David is in Ziklag. He's not near this battle. He wasn't part of this battle. And this guy, this Amalekite, comes. And he shows up, and he brings this sad news of Saul's death. Now, this guy, it may be a little bit hard to pick up on, but this guy's pretty shady, all right, this Amalekite. He's pretty shady. Um, He was obviously at the scene of Saul's death because he has his crown. He has his royal armband. And so he has this proof that he he was there with Saul when he died. But as the Hebrew translates in verse 6, it translates that he just happened unexpectedly across this scene. As a foreigner, you don't just happen unexpectedly the death of the king of a nation on top of a high mountain. You don't stumble across that. You don't go down to the corner shop to pick up some bread for breakfast and stumble upon this scene. Um, But that's what he says. He just happened upon by chance. Oh, here's the king of Israel. Oh my goodness, he's run through with a sword. Let me take his armband and crown. No, something else is going on, perhaps. Um, The Amalekite is expecting David to be happy about the news that Saul is dead. He thinks he's the bringer of good news. And frankly, we would expect David to be thrilled as well. I mean, we've talked about all of the things that Saul did to David. And, uh, and I think when I preached on that I, last month, I even said, hey, it would be pr- probably pretty good if Saul were dead at this point. David's problems would disappear. We would expect David to be thrilled because David does nothing but honor Saul throughout Saul's reign. Um, David serves Saul by providing him with emotional support, um, leadership support of his army, and through his faithfulness to Saul. Um, Saul, in return, chases David around the Judean wilderness, throwing spears at him. David is hiding in caves from this guy so he doesn't get killed on this rugged terrain that you need, we would use, special equipment to traverse. And David's running around with sandals on and maybe a bag over his shoulder, sleeping in caves all while trying to do his job as the commander of Saul's army and defending the nation of Israel. And he didn't do a bad job of that. Um, David has two chances to kill Saul in this book, and he doesn't take either one because he was the Lord's anointed. So David has every reason to celebrate this. His problems are over, right? He has every reason to celebrate. Saul made David's life a living hell. He made his life a living hell. Um, We would expect David's response to be one of great joy that Saul is dead. It would have remedied his problems. And this is what the Amalekite expected as well. 
he had made a three-day trip. He was so excited. Three days to meet David, to tell him this news. Three days through the Judean wilderness to tell David that Saul was dead, probably with anxious anticipation of what his reward would be for bringing this good news. But David, David sees right through this guy. Um, go ahead and flip to 2 Samuel 4, verse 10. 2 Samuel 4, verse 10. This is David speaking. And he says, Someone once told me Saul is dead, thinking he was bringing me good news. But I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. That's the reward I gave him for his news. So we know that David was not happy about this news, that he knew this guy was manipulating the situation. Um, David sees right through him. Um, There's some debate among the scholars about what actually happened here. Um, When we read chapter 31 in 1 Samuel, it seems like Saul died after he fell on his sword. Um, When you read chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, it seems like he might have been dying on his sword, and then the Amalekite comes in and kills him. Um, The bulk of the evidence seems to be that this guy happened upon a dead Saul and took his stuff from him, the crown, the armband, and then, to make the story better, said that he had killed Saul, thinking David would really want to hear that, thinking that he would have an even greater reward coming because he was the one that made David's life easier. He was the one that ultimately put David on the throne because he killed Saul. But David is not, is not happy. So this guy comes looking with political motive for some reward, maybe a place in David's kingdom, um, maybe some, some resources. Maybe he thinks he's going to get rich off of this thing. But David will not have it. David legitimately is sad for what has gone down on Mount Gilboa. Um, so he has him killed. He has this guy killed because, because he claims to have killed the Lord's anointed. Whether or not he did, we don't know. But he was at least manipulating the the king's death for his benefit. So he, David has him killed because Saul's death will not be taken like this. Saul's death will not be used for someone else's gain because David's heart is grieving, which we should find that hard to believe, that David's heart is grieving. In verse 11, it says that David tore his clothes in mourning upon hearing the news. In verse 12, it says that he wept and fasted. This is not just ceremonial appropriateness. This is legit. David wept. He mourned. He fasted. He was brokenhearted for the loss of his king. Brokenhearted over the situation. Um, In verse 15, he has the Amalekite killed, a sign of honor towards Saul. In verse 17, he composes a funeral song for Saul people who compose funeral songs compose them out of a deep love and respect for the person who died. David does this for Saul. Verse 18, he commanded that the funeral song be taught throughout Israel. This isn't just a personal exercise for David to do to honor his king or to love his king. He demanded, he commanded that the people of Israel learn this song and give that same love and respect to Saul. David had every reason not to respond in this way, and we wouldn't have blamed him. We wouldn't have blamed him. Let's take a closer look at the funeral song. In verses 19 and 20, David honors Saul. Your pride and joy, O Israel, lies dead on the hills. Israel's pride and joy lies dead. 
how the mighty hero, he's a hero, how the mighty heroes have fallen. Now, this is about Jonathan and Saul. We're going to be focusing specifically on David's relationship with Saul as we go through here. But keep in mind as well that David is honoring both father and son. Don't announce the news in Gath. Don't proclaim it in the streets of Ashkelon. Don't let the enemy know because they will dishonor this person. We want to honor and love him. In verse 21, Saul's death is such a huge loss that the land will feel pain and stop producing. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fruitful fields producing offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty hero, the mighty heroes, was defiled. The shield of Saul will no longer be anointed with oil. This is a loss not just for the people, but for the land. In verse 22, he was a great warrior. The bow of Jonathan was powerful, and the sword of Saul did its mighty work. They shed the blood of their enemies and pierced the bodies of the mighty, of the mighty heroes. So Saul, David is honoring the work that Saul did as leader of Israel. He was a hero. He was a mighty warrior. He's acknowledging all these parts of who Saul was. Um, in verse 23, he was loved by many, and he extended his grace to God's people. What? How can David say that? Let's read that. Verse 23. He, how beloved and gracious were Saul and Jonathan. They were loved by the people. How gracious were they? They were together in life and death. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. How is it that David can speak of Saul's grace? But he does. As a man chased around by Saul, Saul seeking David's death, and yet Saul says, this was a man of grace. Verse 24, he provided materially for the people of Israel. O women of Israel, weep for Saul, for he dressed you in luxurious scarlet clothing and garments decorated with gold. Saul created a nation that flourished. He created a nation where there was exchange, where there was wealth, where their people had things. This wasn't like North Korea, right? where the leader plummets people into poverty. This is, this is a place that the people lived well. And David wants to remind the people of how good their king was to him, how he provided them with good economics. So all of this begs the question then, is how is it that David loved Saul so much after all that Saul did to David? And there is just one simple answer, in that David received the love of his father in heaven. David knew who he was as a son. And in return for receiving that love that God gave to David, and David knew he was loved, he knew he was special, he knew he was cherished, he could then in turn love those around him, including his worst enemy. And he loved Saul. He loved him. He didn't just do it for show, to be the good next king. He loved Saul because the father first loved him. And David knew that. This morning we sung a bunch of songs like Louisa said about receiving the Father's love. If we don't first receive the Father's love, we cannot turn and love like David did. And the kind of loving that David did was not normal loving. This was extreme. This was nuts. This was crazy. If you knew somebody today who did what David did, you would talk about it and say, that's crazy. That's not right. That's not normal. And it's not. But when we receive God's love, we love in abnormal ways. We love in crazy, strange, radical ways. And that's, that's biblical love. Not just being nice or good. David got it. He got it because he received the Father's love. Um, go to Psalm 34 
And you can, you can just hear this in Psalm 34. How much David knows the Father loves him, even though he's in a bad spot. And here, David's in a bad spot in this passage. Psalm 34. I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. David is in a bad spot here. David's running from Saul actively when he writes this psalm. He's looking for help from an enemy king, and he's, he's just in a weird place. Come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. I prayed to the Lord, and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. In my desperation, I prayed, and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles. For the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds and defends all who fear him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his godly people. For those who fear him will have all they need. Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. Come, my children, and listen to me, and I will teach you to fear the Lord. Does anyone want to live a life that is long and prosperous? Then keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. His ears are open to their cries for help. And it goes on and on. But here, here is this man who's in a horrible spot, and all he can do is sing the praises of his father in this chapter. He knows the love of the father. David loved beyond what, would, what we would consider normal and acceptable levels. Um, go ahead and open up your bolt. Actually, flip over to the back of your bulletins. Um, I just want to take a brief survey of biblical love. And we're not going to look at like different Greek words for love and what they mean. We're just going to kind of take the whole thing, just the whole picture of love in Scripture, and, and look at what that challenges us to. Now, of course, a lot of this stuff that I'm going to read through there on the back of your bulletin is, is out of the New Testament. But, but David got it from the Father directly. Like, David inherently lived this kind of stuff, and you'll see it. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God's love for us is evident in the cross, as it is presented in John 3.16. God loved us, so he sent his son to die for us, that we might have life. Because of God's great love for us, we, in our gratitude, naturally, or so it should be, turn and love others. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. John thirteen thirty four. But we don't just love those that it is easy to love. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even ta- corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Matthew five forty four and 46. It seems then that our love is to mimic that of the fathers, a love that is lived on the cross, not that of the world. The world is not comfortable with us loving our enemies or anyone who looks different, acts different, smells different than we do. Try it. There is a price to be paid. So the kind of love the Bible talks about requires sacrifice, and sacrifice ultimately results in some form of suffering. 
we may reason that it is much easier to stick to loving those the world says it's okay to love, like our spouse. But biblical love sets a high bar there too. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. Ephesians 5.25. Flowers aren't enough. Do I really have to die for her? The point of all this isn't to make you or me feel guilty, but to push us all to examine how we experience and show love, his love. How do I love my enemy? How do we love the person who only wants to consume church, money, relationships, success, or power instead of Jesus? How do I die for my wife? How does the body of Christ move towards this kind of love when our lives are inundated with busyness that barely allows us to kiss our spouse on the way out the door? But three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So you see, love in the Bible is this concept that often goes beyond what we consider to be love. The kinds of sacrifice it requires go beyond. And David showed us what that means. And the only way we can love this way, the only way is if we first receive the Father's love. If we don't receive truly the kind of love the Father has for us, then we have no concept of what it means to then turn and love other people, especially the people the world says we shouldn't love, our enemies, people who look different than us, people who act different than us. But that's just the kind of love that the Bible tells us we should be living. Why should we just love our friends? Everybody does that, right? That's what the Bible tells us. Um, I want to share two, two illustrations. Um, when I was a kid growing up, um, I lived in this suburban neighborhood. Cool place to live. I had lots of friends who lived in the neighborhood. We were always playing wiffle ball and soccer in everybody's backyard and that kind of thing. Really, really great place to grow up as a kid. Um, we had this one neighbor who kind of was surrounded by several of our families, um, older gentleman and his wife, and uh, he had the perfect lawn, perfect. He mowed it two different directions every week, had the checkerboard in it. I mean, and it was, it was, it was beautiful. I mean, even as a kid, I thought, boy, his lawn looks better than our lawn. And, you know, kids don't pay attention to that, but you could tell. Beautiful flowers, bird feeders, birds coming in. And, um, but this man was mean. Um, especially with a bunch of kids playing ball around him. Um, I remember one time we hit a wiffle ball into his yard, and it just sat on top of his grass. It didn't break any blades as far as I could tell. And, but you know when you hit a ball into Sheck's yard, there's trouble. It was like the alarm goes off inside of his house. You know, everybody just freezes in panic, and I'm not lying to you. This is what happened. And he comes barreling out of his house and just tears into us, and, just, and we're just like, ah! And, um, and it was just, we lived in fear, but we still were kids, and we still played ball. Um, we were playing soccer right next door to his house one day, and um, the soccer ball, it was a Nerf soccer ball, and Sheck had a, a red Corvette, and his license plate said, Sheck. And the ball rolled just down this little hill and hit the tire of his Corvette, and we scattered. And I remember hiding behind my friend's house, and the next thing I saw was these two feet, and I looked up, and he just lit into me and just tore me apart about this ball hitting his Corvette. And, and I was, it just, just scared me and hurt me. And, and I ran home in tears. I was probably 
senior in high school then. No, 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 I was home from college break. That's no, I was probably in middle school at the time. And, um, and I just cried to my parents and Shaq and the ball went, you know, they, they knew the story. And, um, my, uh, that week, my dad took flowers up to his house, not as to be smart, not to stick it to him, but to love his enemy. And my dad thought the man was wrong. You know, he thought his behavior towards the kids was wrong. My dad also told us to try to keep the balls out of his yard and, you know, do a better job at that. But, but he knew the way this man was treating us was not right. And, uh, and I remember as a kid just thinking, whoa, like my dad really is trying to do something nice for this guy. He's really loving his enemy. And it just made this impression on me. And it, and it stuck with me ever since. Like, wow. Like, and, and he didn't just have him delivered to the house. Like, my dad carried him up there. Like, he stuck and looked at him face to face, and he gave him. I remember watching my dad walk up the street thinking, you're crazy. But he did it, and it made a difference. Like, Shaq received that. He received that from my dad. Um, that, that's biblical love, but it had nothing to do with flowers. It had everything to do with my dad's heart and, and what he wanted to do with, for this man and what he wanted to give this man. Second illustration, we're going to watch a little movie clip. Interesting on several levels. I mean, it's a great story. We hear that. But it also shows this, um, this picture of love that the world can't handle. Like, so there's this five-minute video about this guy's life, right? And the key part lasted about two seconds. You might have missed it. They said he went back to Japan, and he forgave his captors. And he also carried the torch in the Olympic Games, Right? But it was just like, the world can't handle that. The world, I mean, that, that is the story here, right? That is the story. God's love changed this man's life. And then he was able to go and forgive people who had put him through unconscionable abuse and torture. And to legitimately say, I forgive you. Like, that is love. Just like David loved Saul, that is that is love. This is not normal stuff. This is not what we think of as being normal. This is biblical normal, but this is not normal for how we live most of our lives normal. Um, we think love is something nice, something good, not doing something mean, um, but biblical love calls us to a higher standard. Um, who is it that we don't love that we are to love? Um, we love our friends pretty well, but, but who is it that's out there that we don't know how to love? Like, we're just at a loss. Um, maybe for some of us, it's, it's politicians. And this is, you know, we've got both parties here just to cover the gamut for everybody. You know, maybe it's politicians and their behavior. Maybe you just find it hard to love people in positions of power like that. Maybe, maybe it's our president. Maybe you might find our president difficult to love. Um, maybe you might find people from another culture different to love because of how they live or how you perceive them to live or how you see them living. Maybe it's somebody of a different skin color than you. (laughs) Maybe it's your spouse that you just can't love the way that the Bible says you're supposed to love your spouse, your bride, your groom, Maybe it's people that you see in sin and that justifies removing your love. 
Maybe it's your neighbor, your physical neighbor, or your neighbor, your biblical neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. Maybe it's your parents. I have no idea who these people are, but they're his parents. Maybe, maybe you, there's unresolved family conflict, and you just cannot love your parents or another member of your family. Um, maybe you hate lazy people. Their lifestyle. Maybe you don't like rich people. And you, couldn't, you can't find yourself to love those that have, that don't seem to want to give. Maybe you can't love poor people um, because they've made bad choices or whatever reason. Uh, people in the welfare line. And I haven't covered it all, but we all struggle. And I just, this was a general kind of picture of people who, who maybe we can't love but who the Bible very clearly says we are to love. You are to love. Um, that, is, that is hard. And I get that we all have our reasons not to love certain people in our life. Like, we all maybe are thinking right now of a person. Um, maybe that person's part of our family, or maybe that person was pictured here or was represented up here. And we all have reasons not to love them because they did X, Y, Z. David had every reason not to love Saul. He had every reason. But he loved him anyway, not because he was told to, but because he naturally did, because he received the love of the Father. And when we receive the love of the Father, he couldn't do anything but love Saul. There was no other option for him. He was that close to his father. There was no other option. There should be no other option for us. We've got all the excuses. I've got all the excuses. We've got plenty of justification, plenty of contracts in our life that have been broken by another person. But that's not how we're to live. Go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us continue to live, I'm sorry, dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God, a son, a daughter. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's a pretty strong indictment. If we cannot love the way that Scripture tells us to love, we're told that we're, we're actually not the child that maybe we thought we were because, because if we're not receiving the love of God, then we're not loving over here. And if we're not receiving the love of God, then we're not living in our sonship. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, 
God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. In verse 10, you see this notion of sacrifice. It talks about Jesus dying on the cross and says, you know, this, this is real love. Love requires sacrifice. And then in verse 11, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. That, that our love should require us to sacrifice. Maybe it sacrifices our pride. Maybe it sacrifices our comfort. Maybe it sacrifices our social standing. Maybe it sacrifices other relationships who won't understand why we're loving that person. But it requires sacrifice. That is real love. Um, Go down to uh, 16, the second part of verse 16. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. But we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. Perfect love expels all fear. Like, the love that we receive from God is perfect. And when we receive that, it expels fear. It means we can go and love Shek. It means we can go forgive those who have abused and beaten us in war. It means that we can build our marriage back again because we have God's love, because we are his sons and daughters, because our identity is as a son or a daughter in him, because that's who we were made to be. We didn't earn it. We were given it as a gift because he loved us. We can love those that the world says that we can't love because we have received the love of our Father. Lord, we thank you for, um, for your love for us. We thank you that you have empowered us with your love, that we can turn and love others. Um, Lord, I pray now that you would, you would bring to mind for us, each of us, somebody that we struggle to love. And maybe it's just, we don't show it outwardly, but in our heart, we just can't love this particular person for whatever reason, and the reason doesn't matter. But Lord, empower us with your love and our identity in you as your sons and daughters so that we might love, Lord. So bring those places to mind. Bring those relationships to mind, Lord. You have called your children to love. They will know that we are your followers because of our love. Lord, your church for too long has been missing love. Love of one another. Love of the world. Love of our own families, Lord. Lord, bring that back. Bring it here to Cornerstone. Let us be ones who love, who receive your love and love you, and who receive your love and love our families and our spouses, who receive your love and love those that the world says we shouldn't or can't love. But Lord, give us more of that. Put us in those places, Lord. And when we love in those places, we will see more and more of you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.